Welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. My name's Will Duffin, GP and Education Lead. If you're a paramedic, doctor, nurse, physio, or indeed anyone working in healthcare who has a curious and adventurous mind, then this is the podcast for you. Given the current circumstances, we're not able to run our usual face-to-face expedition medicine courses that normally take place around the world. So instead, we're bringing world-class minds directly to your earbuds. So please sit back and enjoy. My guest today, hailing from Sydney, Australia, is a Guinness world record holding explorer, documentary maker and keynote speaker, Justin Jones. Let let me give you a flavour of some of the crazy shit this guy's done. In 2008, he completed the first crossing of the Tasman Sea by kayak. That's from Australia to New Zealand, completely unsupported. Then in 2012, also with his adventure buddy Kaz, they skied 2,200 kilometers from the geographical edge of uh, of Antarctica to the South Pole and back over 89 days, again, completely unsupported, setting another world first. Then in 2017, he got the whole family involved and alongside his wife, Lauren, and then 15-month-old daughter, Morgan, they undertook an 1,800-kilometer trek across the Aussie outback over 102 days, living wild. Uh, Jonesy's a colourful character and also a passionate storyteller. Mate, welcome to the podcast. Will, thank you so much for having me. Can you just come around with me wherever I go? Because that intro is fantastic. You need to tell my wife that, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) I'm glad you liked it. (laughs) So how are things? uh, You're in Bondi, I gather. How are things over there at, at the moment, Jonesy? Yeah, pretty good down in Bondi, actually. I mean, it's uh, we haven't really had a real severe hit from this whole COVID pandemic, um, but I think that's because of the, the the fact that we've jumped onto lockdown pretty quickly. Um, Bondi, it's a pretty nice place to be socially isolated, I suppose, in quarantine of sorts, because we can still escape off and climb down the cliff lines and jump into the water and uh, get that nature fix that, that I, in particular, really crave and need. Because I saw they, uh, the beach was rammed pre-lockdown and then they all the police came in and, and, and shut it down, didn't they? Yeah, we had one really hot weekend where I think people were a little bit silly and they came down in their, in their, their droves. I think about it and you know, there was, I'm not going to say how many thousands or hundreds of people down on the beach, but they just weren't really paying the respect to actually what was going on and what they should be doing. And so the police, after that lockdown, no more beach access, and, and that was it uh, for the last. We've finally opened back up today. The beaches are open, but it's only for swimming for exercise. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like in Australia as well, things are just starting to open up again. Is, is that right? They are opening up. There's, I mean, there's a collective sort of breath that everyone's having at the moment. It's like, well, we haven't seen this big hit that we thought was going to come. Um, you know, the, the public health system hasn't been overwhelmed. So everyone is now itching to get life back to normal, but it's not going to become normal. It's not going to go back to the normal we once knew. It's going to be a new normal. It's going to be, it's going to be post-COVID. Um, and so this is going to be an interesting world we're entering into. And I, I actually... I know this sounds strange and it could be slightly insensitive. You know, I'm excited by this in a sense um, because for once it feels like the entire world is on an adventure together. Like we really are. Like we're people are weathering the storm in um, better ways than other people, but 
in reality, we're all going through this and we're all going to emerge on the other side having gone through this journey. Uh, and and I think that's a phenomenal um, thing to be part of. I mean, this is a point in time in history and hopefully we all band together and change, change for the better. And I think you possibly better than anyone knows that a good journey is built from adversity. There, there needs to be some kind of jeopardy along the way uh, for, for that journey to be forged. And um, I, I think the people that will really struggle with the post-COVID era um, world will be the ones that that don't acknowledge and uh, what's happened and accept that that new normal, and are still trying to recreate a world in the way that it was before the pandemic. I, I think actually a nice way to, to a nice analogy to use here is actually probably looking at kids. Anyone that's had kids, if you try and go back to your life before kids and live the same way, you just can't do it. You can't do yeah. it. So you've got to accept the things that change, the circumstances have changed, everything's changed, and go, all right, well, we've got to find that new balance, that new normal, and, and make it better, you know? And with kids, yeah, it is hard at certain times. You know, those nights are very long, and we are in the long night. Um, but it does get better, and it comes comes good. It really does. Yeah, do you know, as a as a parent of an eleven month old, it's so great to hear that. You know, my wife and I aren't sleeping a great deal at the moment, so um, that gives us huge hope. Yeah, well, <laughs> on a side from everything, can I give you some personal advice that someone once gave me for for our Go first ahead. child? They said, um, "Kids with kids, the the nights are, are so so long, but the months are so short." So, and I think that has been something that's sunk in my mind. So when it is feeling really bad, knowing that it will pass and in the blink of an eye, they're, they're six, 12 months, 18 months, and then you walk across the outback with them. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. yeah, and we're going to talk about that adventure because that that is incredibly cool. I, and I think there's, a, there's a, a certain mindset. I think some people I know are really using this time in lockdown as, as a lifetime. They're really engaged in different projects. They're really looking at ways they can modify what they're doing and still really, really fill their, fill their time in, in a meaningful and productive way. Whereas I think some people are, are treating this as dead time. They're really just waiting for this to pass. And I think that would be a huge mistake because even when things are tough, we really, uh, life is so short. We really have to savor every moment, don't we? Yeah, no, we really do. I mean, if, you, if you're if you just sitting there and waiting, you don't know how long this is going to go for. This, this I mean, adventure is an activity we're going to come. We're in an unknown right now, so we've got to make the most of it. Um, you know, this, I don't know how long it's going to be before we have a, a viable vaccine that, you know, a year, year, year and a half, two years before it can you know, get spread around enough. Um, so you, you can't put a pause on life for that long. You just cannot. You've got to go out there and go, all right, well, how can I shift and change and adapt to the situation? Uh, reality yeah, absolutely yeah totally now uh in lockdown many of the us adventurous types are are not able to get out there and and um and have real adventures so uh there's a huge appetite for just some rip ripping yarn some adventure tales and um i think you have those in abundance jonesy we'd love to hear about some of the crazy stuff that you've done i might have a tale or two so okay we can jump into it and um Look, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe I'll, I'll slip in one tall tale, tale and see if you can uh, you can guess which one that is <laughs> throughout the hour. <laughs> well, why don't we start with your Tasman Sea crossing by kayak? What, how on earth did you dream that one up? That trip was actually born on another expedition. Like, so I honestly think um, if you want to go on a big expedition, you should go on a smaller one first because these trips naturally just cascade. Um, so to give you to take it back a little bit. 
I am a bushwalker by nature. So I love my, my trekking, my tramping. Um, and for me, kayaking was a natural extension of that. It felt like bushwalking on water. So in 2001, uh, myself and two friends from school decided to try and paddle the entire length of Australia's longest river, the Murray River. Two and a half thousand, well, 2,560 kilometers. And we did that over 49 days. And it was a very Huckleberry Finn style adventure. Uh, you know, we, we were, you know, confused boys at the start of that trip and we were slightly less confused, slightly more manly boys at the end of it. And I think it did a lot for our self-confidence. But it was around day 30, 31 or so that the idea for the Tasman was born on this Murray River paddle. And I will never forget that day because it was about 45 degrees. So the sun is just baking down on us and we're paddling along. And I I was over it. You know, I was really over this trip. I wanted to pull up next to the bank and just go to sleep. I was done. And I remember seeing out of the corner of my vision, Cass's kite, my mate, James Constriction, Cass, his kite nudged up in the view and I turned and looked up towards his face, expecting to see that anguish that I'm feeling inside, just kind of etched on his face. Instead, he's got this dark grin. He's like, mate, how much fun are we having right now? I'm like, oh shit, he's got heat stroke. I'm like trying to paddle away from him. And he sticks with me. He's like, mate, we should do another journey like this again, you know, but rather than being in on a, on a, you know, a closed off inland stretch of water, do you reckon we could do something on the open ocean? Do you think anyone's ever paddled a kite from Australia to New Zealand? And right then and there, I told him he was a bloody idiot in a lot stronger language than that. And I, I can just picture the crazed look oh, on his face. It, it's just madness. Like, honestly, madness. And I was just like, you can't, you can't paddle a kayak safely across the Tasman Sea. You know, I was the first person to say that. Like, you cannot do it. It is impossible. And so I just paddled away from the bloke. And we didn't talk about this trip for another two, three years. You know, and fast forward, all of a sudden, I'm working. Actually, my, my background at university was, um, was science, uh, exercise physiology. So I'm working in a research lab uh in uh 2003 and i get this phone call and it's from cass and i pick up the phone the first two words he says to me are the ditch which is colloquially what we call that stretch of water it's called the ditch um, between australia and new zealand and i knew he was talking about this journey and i was like mate we cannot paddle and i kind of stopped myself halfway through saying it's impossible and i realized that i was like Living a life that wasn't quite my life at that moment, I was looking. I was in this dungeon of a laboratory in the base of the, the University of New South Wales, and I was looking around. I was like, "Hang on a second here, you know, I'm living someone else's life right now because, like, I've always placed myself in the outdoors, and here I am saying no to the idea of doing a trip, the possibility of doing one, and I don't know anything about this journey. I'm, I'm straight out saying it's not possible, and so I said, "Actually, hold up, Cass. Look, I'm not going to commit to doing this journey because I think it's ridiculous." But what I will commit to you is we can sit down and try and work out whether it's possible. Let's just start there. And that stage took 18 months to work out whether it was possible. So a year and a half of research and planning until finally we, we ended up creating this 100-page document, which is our blueprint to how we could safely get across the Tasman Sea. And we were like, all oh, right, shit, it is possible. So now we have to commit to it or not. And that was, that was probably the hardest point of the whole journey. Wow, because I understand that the the poor soul that attempted this before you um, unfortunately perished. Yes, there was a, there's a, another paddler by the name of Andrew McCauley. So Andrew McCauley actually um, uh, he passed away in at the, at the start of 2007, so February 2007, and we ended up leaving in um, November 2007. And Andrew, um, it was we were actually trying to leave at the same time, like. 
it, it turned into a little bit of a race at the time. And, you know, Andrew was going out there trying to do it solo in a very different fashion from us, but we were both trying to be the first across. And then we had horrific issues with our kayak. And so we had to pull the pin on it and say, well, he's going to have, he's going to take the glory and we'll, um, we'll, we want to stay alive because our kayak doesn't work properly. So we postponed it until the next season. And, um, Unfortunately, Andrew's kayak was found 80 kilometers off the coast of New Zealand, and they never found him. It was it was a horrific wow. end to, to a mammoth journey that he that he was yeah. pulling off. Wow, yeah, that's um having that in the back of your mind when you when you set off, that must have been quite um yeah, must have left you with an awkward feeling. Yeah, it, it, yeah. I mean, I think I've reflected a lot more on it as I've gotten older. Um, to be completely honest, I, I, when when Andrew left, he had a, a three year old son uh, and a wife, and so that becoming a parent that really hit me a, a lot harder. But also, um, you know, there there was I, you know, I had a probably a lot of I felt a lot of guilt actually to a degree, and that probably germinated uh, and sprouted a little bit more as I got older because uh, I realized if I took a more perhaps more of a collaborative approach rather than a combative approach, you know, trying to, you know, race across. Maybe there was a way that we would have both delayed our journeys, you know, a, a year uh, and it would have been a different end. Um, I mean, you can't, you can't change the past and, you know, you can't control other people, but at the same token, I, I do, it doesn't weigh on my mind. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And so you spent 62 days at sea in a, in a tiny double kayak. Um, what with some of the, biggest challenges during that that time at sea uh well i've got to say probably the biggest challenge was getting to the start line because three and a half years of preparation preparation and planning went into this journey and so it, it was it was a long time to be you know 90 percent in the preparation stage only 10 percent in the execution it's a hard 10 percent don't get me wrong but uh out there we were only expecting the journey to go for 35 to 40 days and that was it and we ended up doing 62 days. You know, if you were to measure it in a straight line, it's about 2,200 kilometers that we were taking. We paddled 3,318 Ks. So we did an extra 50%. So a couple of things went wrong <laughs> along the way, I should say. We were paddling along and we did a two-week circle in the middle of the Tasman Sea. So we did a two-week circle and we got struck by storms out there with 10-meter 10, 10 waves. So if you're in a room, stare up at that roof and just imagine a wave that's four times the height of that ceiling. And then, and these things are like crashing around the kayak. And the ocean has an incredible way of making you feel so, so small. Uh, yes. And those storms do that. So we had that. Now, how do you keep the kayak? How do you stop it from capsizing in big seas? Yeah. So the most important thing was actually to make sure that you're not broadside to those oncoming waves. Because if you were, then you would. 100% roll. You would have you would have to. So what we ended up doing was actually throwing out a parachute anchor. And the parachute anchor would sit roughly 50 meters behind the kayak and it would turn the tail of the kayak towards these oncoming waves. And as a result, you know, we were able to ride out the storms, but um, what it would what it would do sometimes is the the waves would pass over the top of this parachute anchor relatively easily, hit the back end of the kayak and since it's a nylon rope running back to it, it would stretch and shock load the system. And then all of a sudden, the the pressure pressure would release, and the the kayak would actually go through the waves as they're going over the top. So you'd be stuck inside the cabin, and you just get all of a sudden the port lights would go dark, and a wave would go over the top of you. Um, yeah, we never went fully over upside down. I I think we 
got down to about yeah there and then it, it was actually quite violent in its self-riding manner so lucky enough to capsize are you someone that gets seasick easily I am not, but Cass, my mate, he actually gets really, really badly seasick. So he's in that sort of like, I don't know whether it's five or 10% of the population that his, his, I don't know, his inner ear just cannot get used to it. And Mm. so he ended up having to take a um, regular anti-seasickness medication, but then anti-emetic drugs that give to chemotherapy patients. He was doing Mm. self-hypnosis out there. And the worst one, well, actually the funniest one, I should say, was actually acupuncture. Yeah. So we're in a storm rocking around. He pulls out his acupuncture needles and he's trying to dab it into his, <laughs> his wrist, like in these little pressure points. And it just made me feel sick. You know, I was just watching him just yeah. pepper his yeah. arm. But <laughs> what I actually do suffer from is I actually suffer from claustrophobia. And so having this kayak, we designed a, a little cabin on the back end of it. And that was about the size of a coffin and a half stacked on top of each other. So I, yeah, I didn't love that place, but I kind of had to realize that it was keeping me safe and alive. So during a storm, you're just hunkered down in this tiny cabin, just the two of you riding through these waves, just hoping that the storm anchor keeps you pointed in the right direction and just waiting for it to pass. Yeah, and at times you um, you have to strap yourself down to the floor because you want to use yourself as ballast to hold yourself down yeah. so that you can, can help ride the kayak. Uh, and yeah, no, it, it wasn't comfortable. Um, the length of that cabin, I would say, oh, geez, uh, the internal length had probably been two and a half meters. So my legs were level with Cass's hips and, and vice versa. And uh, because he was, he had really bad seasickness, he actually got the door. So he got the, the comfortable end and I had the roof above my head when I'd lie down, which was about sort of that far off my head. And it was so claustrophobic. It was horrible. Oh, yeah. I don't know how I did it. How did you decide where to be in the kayak? Did you do rock, paper, scissors, draw straws? Oh, you mean in the cabin or actually it's, in the It's cabin? like who gets the tap end in the bath, right? It's, you know, how, how, do you, uh, how do you work that out? Yeah, yeah no, well, uh, so in the cabin, his, his, the needs of vomit are like for cast. Like he needed to be able to sort of like exit and vomit as fast as possible. So that went out to my claustrophobia. And in the paddling seats, I always sat in the back. And generally what you do when you're paddling in a double kayak is you put the heavier, stronger person in, in the back. Um, but also since that's the way we trained, it became kind of second nature for me to take my timing off in paddling. And it was quite funny when we did swap, like we'd be clashing paddles and doing all sorts of stuff, you know, uh, I just got used to it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So you just got in the groove and yeah. there, were, there are quite a few sharks in that stretch of water. Did you have any close encounters? We had a couple of encounters with some sharks. Uh, there was one night in particular where, um, I'd actually, I'd actually just been in the water actually to de-barnacle the hull. And so, you know, the kayak was moving really slowly and I remember scrubbing, scrubbing these barnacles off and they'd, you know, drop off and fall into the ocean and didn't kind of realizing what I was doing was creating a burly trail behind the back of the kayak. And so jump back in the kayak and the sun is just starting to set and kiss the horizon. And we normally just paddled in the daylight hours. And, but I was close to being hypothermic because it was cold at that point of the trip and I we paddled on for about another quarter of an hour and I will never forget you climbing into the cabin had my back to the door and Cass just tapping me on the shoulder. He's like, Hey, I think there's a shark out here. And I'm like, come on, mate. Like you said this morning, you want to see a shark, mate. It's in your imagination. You're just seeing things. And he's like, no, mate, there's a shark out here. And I'll never forget this big bang. And the kayak lurches over to one side. I'm like, shit, there really is. And I grab Cass and we, I pull him inside 
and we had these two sharks pop up and start kind of grinding and rubbing themselves up against the kayak. Now, I mean, it was quite funny because we were borderline. Actually, to tell the truth, only one shark popped up to start with, and I was trying to convince Cass to actually use the underwater camera, stick it, it went, once it had gone past, and stick it underwater and take a, take a shot of it. And I was geeing him up for it because he was, he was at the, right at the door. And he was about to do it when the second shark popped up, and we're like, okay, yeah, let's not do that. Yeah, but, abort. Uh, yeah, abort, abort. Don't do it, Cass. But um, <laughs> three and a half hours, they were rubbing their bodies against the kayak, and we found out later that it's something they do when they find a piece of floating debris in the water, and basically they're using it as a parasite scrub. You know, it's a we were a giant loofah for them in the in the center of the ocean. Just want to scrub their bodies. Yeah, yeah, and you provided a valuable service to the the, the exactly. marine life of the those, Tasman Sea. Those two sharks are the happiest sharks uh, going around, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet that freaked you right out, though, the, the, that that time it, that they were there. It did, it did, but I mean, like to be, yeah, look, it did. But at the same token, when you're sheltered away in the cabin, you feel quite secure. Um, we had layers of Kevlar running through the entire hull of the kayak, and so you could probably shoot a three or three rifle at it and wouldn't penetrate. But where we felt more, I suppose, uh, exposed was when we were actually paddling and you get your hands skimming over the top of the water. And I'll never forget one day seeing a we, – we get fascinated by things we find in the water. I mean, yeah, there was some rubbish and debris, but you'd find like a floating buoy and then underneath the floating buoy would be a whole ecosystem because there'd be barnacles then there'd be fish underneath it and then you get mahi-mahi, like dolphin fish, coming past. And so we saw this black – boy in the water and we're like oh wow awesome okay let's go check it out because there'll be probably be fish life around it and i remember turning the kayak you know 30 degrees and paddling towards it and then like i'm focused on the compass bearing and where we're going and and then cats is like oh mate you're gonna miss it you've gone off course i'm like no i'm on the right bearing we get up to about 20 meters away from it and we realize it's a big black fin sticking out of the water about a foot and a half and we're like okay just turn the kayak keep going back towards new zealand um that's when you felt exposed yeah yeah, I bet. I bet. But you did it. You, yeah. you, you met, it must have been an amazing feeling when you got to the other side, when you got to New Zealand. It was phenomenal. It was crazy. I and mean, so we paddled into Namutu Beach in New Plymouth uh, on the Taranaki coast of the North Island of New Zealand. And I will never forget coming around the break wall there and saying something really stupid to Cass. I'm like, oh, mate, look, I hate to say it. Like, I, granted, I wore contacts back then, but I said, mate, I think they've done something really stupid with their foreshore. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, I think they've painted all their rocks different colours. And he's like, no, you idiot, they're people. They're, we had 25,000 people come wow. down. Yeah, honestly, yeah. 25,000 people down there in a region that only has about 45,000 people in total. And yeah. it was phenomenal. I'll never forget jumping off that kayak, feeling that sand come up between my toes and yeah. staggering up between all these people. It was, it was a phenomenal day, phenomenal experience. Wow, what an incredible moment that must have been. Crazy, yeah, crazy. Yeah. And that kind of thing gets you hooked on adventure. I mean, it really does. So. Yeah, and, and you were so hooked that you you set your sights on Antarctica. Uh, so a completely different beast. You're moving out of the kayak, you're moving on to skis. You're going from 10-foot uh, breaking waves to uh, whiteout blizzards, temperatures as low as minus 40. Uh Tell me how you how you uh, got into uh, the Antarctic trip. 
Yeah, no, so well, okay. when, when we got back from the Tasman, by the way, it was 10 meter breaking waves, not 10 foot. Um, <laughs> very important. When, when, we, when we got back from the Tasman, uh, a couple of things were going on. So I, I look, that's going to stroke your ego a little bit. I think when you see, and I, I, can, I can say this honestly now because I think I've had time to reflect on it and I've grown as a person, but there was a lot of ego caught up in those trips you know it was and not about trying to be arrogant or anything like that it's, it's about wanting to matter wanting to do something significant wanting to people to take an interest and when you get a response like that worldwide media going crazy um yeah you start to think about what i what you could do next and the question everyone asks you after like how was the sharks how'd you go to the toilet you know out there in the kayak the next question would be what's next and a lot or where are you going to kayak to next and I am definitely not an expert in anything and I don't ever really want to be per se. So I think that if we were to go off and, you know, get into the trap of trying to kayak further distances or bigger oceans or this, that, the other, then you eventually find the point between safety and too far. And so I don't ever want to experience that. And so change tack course completely. So Antarctica. Uh, Antarctica was something that we actually talked about a little bit on the Tasman. So, like I said, those trips, they lead on to the other journeys. Uh, we remember looking, I remember looking off to, uh, to the right-hand side of the kayak and we were talking about, you know, that landmass down there to the right, you know, 3,000, 4,000 kilometers to the right. And could we imagine doing a journey down there and imagining these waves on the ocean that instead of being blue, they were white and frozen. And so this, this, this kernel and idea sort of popped in our heads about maybe our next journey should be Antarctica. So the Tasman kind of felt like it really took the blinkers off our eyes and we thought, you know what, Antarctica before was the too hard basket, too expensive, too cold, too hostile to get to, um, just push that idea away. But now we're like, how can we get down there? So we started doing some research and we were quite stunned to realize that you know, there's, there, there, no one had, had done a, a ski trip that had gone from, I suppose, the geographical uh, edge of Antarctica to the South Pole and back, uh, unsupported and unassisted. And, and the polar world is a very funny thing because it's very definition-based. So um, that's not to say that that trip hadn't been done, you know, in, in, with kite skis or people haven't done bigger and greater trips there in terms of distance. Uh, but no one had done this trip from the coast there, that edge, to the South Pole and back under their own steam. Other people had, you know, relied on dog teams or wind assistance or tractors, you know. Uh, and so we're like, right, we're going to do this. We're going to we're going to try and do this journey. And we um, we I should admit that we 15 months before we head down to Antarctica, we didn't know how to ski. So I mean, Australians, yeah, you look. Australia's not a country where you expect great skiers to necessarily come from. So. We had to have a very steep learning curve and over the next two and a half years in total, got ready for this trip, learned to ski in 15 months and headed down and embarked on this journey across Antarctica. And it was a phenomenal ride. Like it was, it was probably the hardest journey I've done physically in, in my life. We were pulling sleds uh, at the start of the journey that weighed 160 kilos each. Um, in temperatures, oh, the coldest we probably got on that trip was probably minus mid minus thirties, minus thirty eight, uh, and yeah, it was it was a phenomenal journey. It really tore us apart. 
Wow. I mean, that the, the weight of that sled, 160 kilograms, you know, you've got no dog team. It's just all on, on you. The, I mean, the, the, the calorie burn, the strain in your bodies from doing that must have been phenomenal. Yeah, the, I mean, the amount of calories, I mean, like I could probably be corrected, but, you, you know, you're burning so many calories. It's probably the order of nine to 10,000 calories per day per person. Uh, and we had only budgeted uh, taking 6,000. Well, actually, our diet was a, a staggered diet. It was a six-day rotation where there was three days of 6,000 calories, two days of 5,500, and one day of 5,000. So we had to keep our weight below a certain amount. Otherwise, the sleds get too heavy. And uh, by staggering it like that, the thought pattern was you can actually kind of trick your body. Uh, and so when, when you're on a lower calorie day, it actually kind of doesn't necessarily think it is. So you, even obviously you are, but like you don't go into uh, muscle breakdown as, as bad as you probably should. Uh, now, we at around, because we had made such slow progress, that first, um, probably in the first week of the journey, end of the first week, we started getting snow falling. And so you know, Antarctica is technically a desert. And we had a really bad season where we got a lot of snow. So we had a foot, a foot and a half of fresh snow fall and when you're trying to drag a sled that heavy through that kind of snow it is absolutely horrible tears you apart we were lucky to be averaging 900 meters every hour and by day 30 of the journey we had only covered 300 kilometers we had another you know 1980 odd kilometers to do in the remaining two months of the journey because that's when the final plane flight of the season would leave that portion of antarctica and yeah, it just, it, so at day 37, I remember us having to make the hard call that every second day was going to be half rations. So all of a sudden you're down to two and a half thousand to 3000 calories uh, every second day. And that's when the weight loss, weight loss really happened. Like over the course of that journey, I lost 30 kilos of weight the entire yeah, trip. That's a yeah. lot. You must've been starving the whole time. Uh, it's quite funny. The first two weeks of the journey, uh, I was actually pretty good. Like I wasn't starving. I wasn't crazy. But then, then the hunger was like the, the weeks, I'd say three and four were like, okay. And then, ah, uh, that stretch between day 68 to 83, I never want to feel that hungry in my life again. Like I, I never do it. I, you know, at this point in the journey, I was, I was passing blood actually when I go to the toilet, but the back end of the journey, I was passing blood. I, my, the stomach pains that feel were just horrific. And I remember we used to divide our rations up each night and you'd sit there with your ration pack for the next day and you're trying to go to sleep on this empty stomach. And like I ate, I think one night I ate half a tube of toothpaste and I was just so hungry. And seeing this pack of rations and you'd, Oh, I'll just have a couple of bites. I'll just have a couple of bites. You eat some. And then before you know it, you've eaten through half your rations for the next day. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, it yeah. Talk about refeeding syndrome when we got back from it. Yeah. I put on a lot of weight really fast. Yeah. Well, ready for your next uh, polar trick. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> yeah, the, the mind was a little bit shocked, but I actually put on, I finished the journey at 76 kilos. So started at 106 yeah. kilos. Finished at 76 kilos is the only time in my adult life that I've been lighter than Cass, my mate. Yeah. So, yeah. but we had to, we got stuck down the base down in Antarctica for three days. And mm. when we boarded that flight to go back home, uh, we had to jump on the scales. I weighed 88 kilos. So I'd put on 12 kilos in three days. 
Yeah, well, why wouldn't you? I mean, when you've just come out of an experience like that, I, I, I know I would just eat everything and anything. It must have been amazing to uh, to get some food into you after that experience. Yeah, it, it was, but it did hurt. It actually really hurt. So um, yeah. I remember sitting down, there was this pile of white chocolate brownies sitting in, in, in the, the base camp <laughs> there. And I was having a beer yeah. and these brownies were just sitting there. And so I was just like, I, I think I ate 32 of them. And that, that, that night, I, it's incredible stomach pain, refeeding syndrome. So yeah, it was, yeah, it was yeah. not, not healthy. Not be healthy. careful. Yeah. But I mean, with, with that degree of, of calorie burn and with the rations that you, you had to um, minimize the weight of the sled, towards the end of that trip, did you really, did your body really start to feel it? Did you get to a point where you're very weak that you've, you, you had a, a worry that perhaps you were, were not going to be able to complete this? Yeah, I mean, that, that that was always there in the back of the mind. I mean, because you, you you look down, it was very rare that we were like, you got naked down in a place like Antarctica, but every now and then you'd be swapping over a shirt or something like that, or like swapping from your dirty shirt to your slightly less dirty one, um, thermal top. And you look down, you, you, you'd waste it away. You'd look down, you would recognize the body. And um, uh, the, the pain um, and weakness, yeah, that, that you definitely felt like that. Um, it really became a mental battle. It really did. It was just like, well, you just need to go through the motions. You've trained for this. You know what you're doing. So just go through the motions of that day. Uh, I'll never forget when we when we finished that journey, trying to climb back into the into the plane to so that it was going to take us from our finish point at Hercules Inlet to Union Glacier, the base. Struggling to lift feet up to go into the to the ladder, you know, to, to take us onto the plane because that wasn't a motion that the bodies needed to do. You're shuffling, you're skiing down in Antarctica. You're not stepping up and down it so much, and so those those muscles waste away. You know, you become all the only muscles that you will keep really are the ones that you need to propel yourself on a flat or a relatively flat surface. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And what's it like trying to navigate through a complete whiteout? Because you had some pretty savage conditions out there. Yeah, no, we d- definitely did. So we had uh, a good two weeks worth of whiteouts in that first half or first third of that journey. And what that means is that you have to stare at a waist-mounted compass. If you're, the, if you're the front person, you know, you'd have your bearing for the day. And it's, oh, what were we on? It's like, I think it was 130 degrees south, which was um, because of the magnetic poles off, off to the side. So you're actually not going straight south. Uh, and we, the, the, so the front person would stare at your compass the entire day, basically, because you, it felt like you were floating in white. You couldn't see the lumps and bumps in the snow underneath your feet. There was no contrast and you just stare at the compass now the rear person would follow the other person check his compass every now and then but the strange thing is because you're pulling your sled and it's heavy you're kind of on that angle as you're moving forward and since you have no horizon to sort of focus on your brain resets on what it thinks the horizon should be so you're on an angle like that it thinks the horizon's down and so your mate who's 10 meters in front of you feels like he's floating five meters above you and it's the most bizarre sensation it really is um but yeah you get you get used to it it's just polar travel down there you learn that you know if you are able to keep your skis parallel as much as possible you don't have to check the compass as much or when you do you know are able to see this shrugi patterns generally the wind is coming from a very consistent direction so you know what kind of patterns it makes in the snow and you just line up the angle actually on your skis so there's a shrugi as well and that means you'll be on the right course yeah, unless you're 180 degrees opposite yeah I, I can't imagine two weeks of that yeah no it, it, it does grind on you and um mm. 
that's when we had some good fights, actually. <laughs> and it's a reflection not on the fact that, you know, I hated the other bloke. It's a reflection on the situation. You, you, you're dragging a sled and you're going nowhere. You've made 10 kilometers in a day and it feels like a trip slipping between your fingers. I mean, a lot of people would probably be feeling this way in this whole pandemic at the moment. Uh, and you know, you want to lash out and you want something to sort of react back to you and the other person is the only thing out there. And so our biggest fight on the Antarctic trip was because one morning I made Cass's cup of tea wrong, if you can believe it. Um, Mm. yeah, I I put the powdered milk in before the tea bag and yeah, it resulted. Basically you fucked up big time. Yeah, I did. Exactly. I know. Uh, I'm, uh, I haven't got a sympathetic uh, person to talk to you, and you will. Um, you're with me on my side. But it's a cup of tea. Granted, it's a cup of tea. Um, yeah. So I was, uh, yeah, I was in this shit for a while. And, and then, you know, it's nice to be able to laugh about it now because it's, it was about the situation. The Tasman, though, the biggest fight we had on the Tasman journey was when we'd start our day off uh, by sharing like half a Mars bar or something. And I'll never forget, we'd split a Mars bar and, and Cass made a comment as he's eating his half of the Mars bar and I'm pulling in the parachute anchor uh, about to start paddling. Uh, he said something really negative and I was like, oh, it could be worse. It could be X, Y, Z. And he's like, yeah, you're right. It could be worse. And he took my half of the Mars bar and just chucks it in the water. And oh my gosh, there was a massive fight that happened after that. I almost yeah. hit the head of the paddle, like honestly. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, my experience of of uh, being in in places where we're in very close knit teams, there's a, a lot of pressure to uh, to perform. Uh, these tiny little things uh, can take on a whole new significance, can't they? And and you know, tensions, get, you know, everyone can be on on edge, and you, you find yourself getting very very reactive. I'm I'm going to ask you a question, Will. What's your yeah. what's your go to strategy for conflict resolution in high uh, high stress situations? So it's a great question. I, I, in fact, I was talking about this with uh, one of our other guests um, uh, uh, only the other uh, the other day, and we were talking about self awareness, and I think that's that's really the key is is the the power that lies in the gap between stimulus and response, and buying yourself a little bit of time. So when someone's pissing you off, when they're doing something like uh, making your tea wrong or doing something with a Mars bar, whatever it is, uh, rather than allowing yourself to react impulsively and through emotion, you, you you just step back from that moment and you create a bit of gap. And I've found that the more I can cultivate that, the more I'm then able to respond in a considered way that's in, in accordance with my values and out of, you know, it shows respect to that, to that person, a bit more understanding and compassion um, but that only comes from not allowing your emotional brain to just uh, hijack the, the situation. Yeah. So that's the, the gap between stimulus and response. That's the thing that I've been I've been trying to cultivate. And I'm not saying it's easy. Like everyone, I, I have moments where I, I, I kick off at people. Um, but that that's what I'm working on. No, that, that's really good. I, I, I think I was actually uh, I hold a, a philosophy that's very similar to that. And you know, it's it's mm. it's taking that time to pause and just because. Um, well, we had a, a policy on most of, well, most of my trips, I've had a policy of complete disclosure. So it is complete disclosure. You can tell the other person how you feel, but there's a caveat to that. And the reason why it's complete disclosure is because you cannot have grudges festering away that's going to undermine team dynamics. You've got to get it out, lance it as fast as possible So because you, you're trusting this person with your life. And if you're in a, a you know, a, a, a 
high, highly functioning team, you need to have that quick response um, and trust. Uh, and so complete disclosure, but just hold that for 12 hours. If you've got a massive gripe, hold it for 12 hours. And when you're by yourself, you know, say what that gripe is out in, out in the open. Because half the time, you know, when you're in an argument, you're saying something and you realize what you're saying is about you, not the other person, but you are too committed and you will go down that, you know, you'll sink with the ship because you're, you don't want to take a step with a backward step. Um, and I find with men in particular, that's, that's very true. Women are a little bit more circumspect. They'll, you know, be able to realize, oh shit, you know, I was probably a little bit off there. Whereas a guy will run with it for a while before they'll finally admit their, their oh, faults. I think there's, yeah. there is definitely gender difference there. And yeah. uh, I think what, what and, and as I mentioned, you, you, you've mentioned the, the kind of the ego side of things. Um, I found as a medic covering um, uh, trips where you're in um, extreme environments, there's a lot of pressure on you to be almost superhuman. People often ask, you know, uh, what's going to happen if you get sick? Who's going to look after us? And you think, oh, well, I've, I've better not get sick then I've, I've just got to be putting on this uh this facade that i'm totally cool with all of this i've, I've got this um when that we know that that's rubbish because uh we, we all have days when we struggle and and there are days when um you're not really able to bring your a game we're only human and i think having the self-awareness to be not only know that you're not in a good place that day and you're going to snap at people but then also to, like you say, have full disclosure to the rest of the team but, or your adventure partner just to be able to say, hey, do you know what, mate? I'm not really feeling it today. Um, I'm, I'm getting a bit pissed off. And you could even say what's pissing you off and say, look, I'm sorry, I'm going to be a bit snappy just so you know, is that all right? And I, I, I'm not always able to do that because I think ego and pride often prevents me from doing that. But I, I really wish I, I, would, I could bring that more often. It's actually, ego is a very, very interesting thing. And it, it, I learned a lot, and we'll get into the, the third trip soon, soon-ish, but um, I learned a lot from that trip and being out there with Lauren about how being with a person who you know unconditionally loves you can be a bit of a curse because it means that sometimes you put on a facade that's actually not bad in those, that's it, it, positive in, in a tough environment because you won't sort of let those emotions out because I was around my wife. At times, I was emotionally dumping on her and dumping on her, and she was like, "Whoa, hang on! You can't use me as your whipping post to like tell me all these issues you're having." And, I'm, and it was quite interesting. I reflected on that. I was like, "You're right, actually. If you were a, you know, there is a gender thing going on. There's a the fact that I trust you. And if you're another bloke that was, you know, an adventure peer, I wouldn't be talking about these things to you, um, and I'd just be getting along with it." And so she said, "You know, it's really unfair that you're dumping that on me." And I had to sort of take a step back and go, "Yeah, you're right. Whoops." Yeah, I mean that is a whole different ball game. I think uh, when your adventure partner is your wife, uh, I don't know about you, but I find I I lose all kinds of objectivity when when you know it's someone that's really close to you and you have that kind of emotional connection to. I, I think it it really must have made things, especially when you throw an eighteen hundred kilometer trek and and a fifteen month old in the mix. That must have re- tensions must have frayed. Uh, yeah, the de- degree of difficulty of that trip was, yeah, <laughs> all in who we were bringing over, the 15-month-old. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if I was to classify the three trips, I'd do them this way. The, the yeah. Tasman, highest risk of death. Antarctica, highest risk of injury. Outback, highest risk of divorce. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, yeah I, I don't think I want an argument that entire journey because yeah, you, can't, yeah. you can't argue in the same way with, with a, a spouse no. or a loved one. Than mm. you can, you know, an expedition buddy. 
Uh, and yeah, because there would be a end scenario worse than death from a journey like that. And that's that we irrevocably broke, you know, our relationship and our marriage and, and uh, came back from that, you know, with that fractured. And that, that for me is it would be, would be worse than death. So yeah, there were, there were times out there where you'd have these fights and, and, and you think, geez, have I done the wrong thing by bringing my family out here? Or am I, am I testing us too far, you know, pushing us too far? Um, luckily, we're still together. We've had another kid since then. So yeah, I think we're, we're on the right path. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. And let's move on to onto that trip a little bit. So um, many um, people who are in their 30s, who've been on lots of exciting adventures, they are left with the impression that as soon as kids happen, game over. You've you've gone against the grain and you've proved that it's still it is still possible to have crazy madcap adventures with a child in tow. Um, And um, yeah, tell us what tell us what that was like. Right. Okay. So yeah, we were, <laughs> I coming back from Antarctica, so I'm a bit stunned right now thinking about this because it, it does seem crazy to me still. Uh, coming back from Antarctica, I wanted to do another big journey. I really did. And I, there's a bit of a story I should tell about Antarctica and that we were, because it relates to it, we were down in Antarctica trying to do this journey and there was another chap was also trying to do the exact same trip as us a norwegian bloke by the name of alexander gammy and he was you know he's a polar guru compared to us we we're like he's norwegian you know he's, yeah, he's got yeah. ice in his veins he's a breech bird he's got to pull him out by his skis you know he oh, so, so this is an amundsen scott style 100 situation 100%. yeah 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 and so and so there's <laughs> there's us you know playing the role yeah. of, of, of captain scott and and Roald Amundsen, alexander gammy over there on the other side of the fence mm, yeah and just like the norwegians back then crack skier you know amazing guy and trying to do the same journey as us and he mm. he uh, in, in effect he beat us the entire journey he was ahead of us of bar i think one day and um he we were coming back down towards our finish line realizing that we kind of we'd lost in a sense you know when we're going on oh, it's all right to be second you know in this journey considering we're racing against a, a norwegian pro skier kind of thing and um he ended up doing probably the most amazing act of sportsmanship of kindness of humility uh he ended up waiting three kilometers short of that finish line that imaginary line to wait for us so we could finish this journey together and we could all get that record and I mean, it's still to this day, it blows, it blows me away. I mean, I, I absolutely love the bloke. I really do. He's a phenomenal guy. If you ever get to meet him, he's just a hilarious, crazy person. But, you know, to be honest, like at the start of the journey, I wanted to hate the guy, but he was a hard guy to hate. You know, we talk on the satellite phone every three weeks or so or two weeks, and he was so open with information. You know, he'd go, guys, if you're suffering from that issue on the trail, this is what I would try. And he was helping his competitors. And when we got to the finish line all together, you know, we ended up getting stuck down there for 30 hours before the plane could finally pick us up. And we asked him why. Why'd you wait? Why'd you wait for two whole days for two blokes you barely knew? And he was like, guys, if I didn't know there were, you know, two crazy Aussies out there skiing behind me, I wouldn't finish this journey. So I wanted to show that respect to you guys. You know, it's, it's amazing to do a trip by yourself, but it's very sad to celebrate by yourself. And I wanted to, to, sh- you know, to not downplay the journey that we'd all been on. 
So a phenomenal guy. And so coming back from Antarctica with that in my mind, seeing what Alex did, I was psyched on the idea of doing another journey, but by myself. I wanted to see if I had the medal of, of could I do a long drawn out trip like that, like Alex, and maintain my sense of humanity um, like he did. And so I started planning a trip to go right across Australia. And I wanted to hunt, gather, live off the land. And it was five months after Antarctica where I met Lauren. And I kind of given up on the idea of love. I kind of like put it in the too hard basket, had failed relationships and all that sort of stuff. And fell head over heels. We got married, started having a family. And the idea for a journey, a solo journey, really started to die. Because it's not only is it that three, four, five months of doing the trip, it's the years of preparation and planning that we got to be pretty focused on. So this idea had kind of died a little bit for me. And the person who saved me from that was actually Lauren. She says to me, you know, I can see you're struggling with the need to satisfy that adventurous bug in you, but also the desire to be a good dad. And you can't reconcile that. So you can't reconcile this adventurous life and a family life because there is anecdotally a high rate of divorce and adventure. There really is. And so she's like, well, why don't I help you with that? Why don't we go on your next family as a journey? And I was like, oh, shit, I've married the right woman. And yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so we, um, we decided to, to try and dumb the trip down halfway across Australia, stick more to, to sort of tracks. Um, dirt tracks out there and then uh, take Morgan. Uh, and I still to this day think this journey was really, really born out of um, too much red wine, sleepless nights and just a madcap idea and it just all combined to this perfect storm. Yeah, and it is possible. It's just, it's bloody hard work. Yeah, okay. And uh, so you were dragging 160 kilograms across the ice in Antarctica. Yeah. How much gear does a 15-month-old need on a self-supported trip across the outback? An unbelievable amount. An unbelievable amount. <laughs> uh, so we had, we, we had two carts. So my, my wife, Lauren, pulled a cart behind her that was a modified Burley-designed uh, Burley sort of like bike carrier. And we sort of like got a bike carrier for a kid and then we gave it steroids. Like put these massive sort of... Um, huge wheels on it with uh, four-inch wide sort of fat tires on it, um, changed the suspension and everything. And she was pulling that one, which probably weighed between 60 to 80 kilos with Morgan and, and all the gear that Morgan would need to survive on, on that trip. And um, then in my cart, it weighed up to on the heaviest stretch. We had like roughly two-week stretches. On the heaviest stretch was about 270 kilos in my car and that was 155 liters of water so pretty heavy and if you're talking about the load that a kid needs nappies diapers you know on that kind of trip we had to find a fully compostable eco solution so that we could actually burn these nappies without any plastic going to the environment how many nappies do you think we would have needed on 102 days in the outback will Oh, wow. So, I mean, I'm guessing maybe five, six a day, over 100 days, so um, 600 nappies. I think we, we, we counted it out at around 843. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a, and you obviously had to carry all of those. Yeah, there's the, no resupply. Actually, so the one thing we did do is with, um, with that journey, every 
two and a half weeks or so, we were able to sort of either stop in at a station or a small town. And so what we did mm. is we actually sent out like things like nappies, <laughs> nappies yeah. and other food to these spots along the way. So uh, okay, we, yeah. we resupplied ourselves every two and a half weeks. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you'd have to. I mean, I, 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 eight hundred nappies—that's like a caravan's worth. Exactly. <laughs> you, you, you can't do it. I mean, like, we'd still be yeah. walking right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and how did Morgan? I mean, it's an incredible experience for a a child to have. How did she find the experience? Do you think? Honestly, she did better than my wife and I. Like, she really did. And I probably learned probably the biggest lesson I've ever learned from adventure, or at least that adventure from her. Like. The teacher of that was a 15-month-old. So at the start of the journey, Morgan had only started to walk or yeah, started to walk two weeks before the journey. So she was taking her first steps. And so she was going to learn how to walk in the outback. Now, now the outback's not a fun and cuddly place. There's lots of vicious thorns out there. It's pretty harsh in an environment. And... So she's there walking along in her little baby slipper kind of things, you know, trying to walk for the first time all barefoot. And she'd step on these thorns and they'd go into her feet and she'd cry and scream. I mean, some of these things were big. They'd go into my tires. I had 11 flat tires over the course of the whole trip. And or she'd fall over and she'd get them stuck in the palms of her hands. And for the first three weeks or four weeks of the trip, you know, she'd land on me, she'd cry, she'd scream, she'd holler. And I'm like, shit, I am the worst dad in the world. I've irrevocably broken my daughter. She's going to come back from the scarred. And it was funny to notice that the, the cries slowly started to die out and she would fall into these things. And then by a certain point of the trip, she'd step on a thorn and lift her foot up and just go, ooh, prick. You'd flick it out and she'd keep running. Like her response to, to, to you know, painful stimuli, to, to the fact that she wouldn't get um, satisfied quickly. So like if you, she wanted a bottle of milk, you know, we'd have to, you know, light a fire would have to do all these steps you know she learned patience out there as much as a toddler can um but what i learned from her is that i think as adults we have a preconceived notion of what we think we should be doing and what normal is you know it's keeping up with the joneses it's the status quo it's having all the mod cons and especially when you have a kid you're taught to really batten down the hatches and just stay at home you know keep life as easy as possible because everything's hard with the kid for morgan though she didn't have that preconceived notion. So her life out there became normal. So as long as she was with mum and dad, then this was exactly what she was meant to be doing at that point in time of her life. And just to see her take that on, I'm like, I need to do that with more with my life. I need to stop looking at other people and comparing myself to them and just focus on my own part. Because as an adult, you get too caught up in that. You really do. And I think mm-hmm. if we as a society could learn to lose that to a degree, I think it'd be really beneficial. Absolutely. I think... Um it's been described as the original mind that children have where they have no preconceived ideas, no prejudices, everything is new and exciting and vibrant. And I think that state of mind, it exists in all of us, even throughout adulthood, but we, we forget that it's there. And I think being around children, especially a child like Morgan out in the outback, that must've really rekindled that for you. No, it, it really did. And it's it's made me super conscious of it now. So I'm noticing Morgan, she's now she's now four years old, just turned four. And I am noticing in her um, a lot of traits that I'm teaching her, you know, subconsciously. You know, you learn a lot from your, your parents. It's that whole very Jung and Freud kind of thing where you, you 
unlucky parents and a lot of those childhood traumas are all, all positive things are what sets your foundations. Um, and I'm seeing certain things that I'm like, wow, she's learned that from me. She's learned that response because that's the way I react in certain situations. She's picking up that for me for good and for worse. You know, there are some negative things. I'm like, geez, I've got to work on myself as a parent because I'm teaching her bad habits here. So, um, yeah, no, it really is. But there's such an open mind. It's a sponge to start with. And just, wow, if we could tap back into that, if we could have a hard reset almost for us as an adult. <laughs> just press that reset button. Oh, yeah. it'd be amazing. It'd be amazing. And yeah. I, think, I think to a degree that's what adventure does. It really does because yeah. you, you can't afford to hide behind ego. You can't afford to hide about certain situations, you know, because when you're on a trip, the environment doesn't care about you. Yeah, it really doesn't. It's just going about its daily business. Whether you live, you die, you do well, you don't. You know, it doesn't care. Your trip fails or not, it doesn't care. And so it it strips that back and realizing that, you know, um, I don't know, you've got to just, just realize and look at the bigger picture. You really do. Yeah, I absolutely. And I, I think what this, this also is touching on is I'd, I'd like to, I'm curious to know about your motivations for adventure now and and how those might have changed over the years you you mentioned at the start there's inevitably some ego involved when you start to get some media interest but it, it sounds to me as though you've really grown as a person through those experiences and perhaps the reason that you do these things has changed can you can you speak on that for a, a moment yeah yeah no, no i 100% can uh so i mean looking at the purity of my the first couple of trips i did going right back to sort of high school, the, I, the outdoors and adventure became a bit of a safe haven for me. You know, I was a pretty confused kid at school. You know, I was the, the you know, the, the cliched, overweight, fat kid at school and this, that, the other, and just very lost. I, but my parents lived, there's a bit of a backstory there. My parents lived in Indonesia. I went to boarding school in Australia, sent over there when I was 11. And I was probably too young for that environment in reality. And so I retracted into my shell. And the outdoors is what helped crack open that shell to a degree. And I found self-confidence in the fact that I was able to do things uh, in an outdoor space rather well. Uh, I'm not going to be a phenomenal climber or anything like that. But I mean, just like I'm comfortable in that environment. And so I, God, I've lost track of myself right now. The original about question, motivations yeah. for Motivation, adventure. Motiv- yeah. yeah. So, so back there, it was about finding myself. And um, what I've noticed as I've grown, like there was a certain point with the Tasman that there was, yeah, some, some ego. There's a, you know, flipping it off at other people. You know, I can do this. You know, I, I want to matter. Um, Antarctica was, was me trying to, I suppose, prove that to myself again and, and to be incredibly honest about this antarctica could have been any journey for me like it really could have like, like don't get me wrong i really wanted to go down to antarctica but i just wanted to go out and suffer on a big trip i really did at that point in my life i wanted to go on another journey i wanted to test myself and it could have been a massive ocean row it could have been down in antarctica it could be up in north pole i just wanted to push myself hard and i got that and so the outback trip with the family is was was completely different in the motivation it was trying to work out how I could merge family and adventure and try and build a life that I don't need a vacation from. You know, I've spoken to a lot of my peers who are in the adventure space and, and doing a trip with Lauren, my wife, and our, our daughter. They were like, you're doing what I wished I could have done or could have kind of tried to work out. 
and it's it's trying to find that balance and you do struggle with it you struggle with um pushing too hard on the adventure side and and because it is, it is your family it's not an adventure partner um ultimately though the number one thing that drives me is probably fomo to be completely honest is the fear of missing out like i'm a pain in the ass at times my my my, my wife will go for a bushwalk and my wife will say you know I'm always late because I want to check out what's at the top of that hill. Or if we don't quite get there, I'll be so pissed off and irritated with myself. Um, so I'll always push it a little bit too far. And uh, and also, I don't want to have any regrets. You know, I don't want to look back on life and think about the things I could have done. I want to look back on life and regret the decisions I made. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, you got to go and get after it. Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's a big, wide world out there, and we only have a very limited time to do all these activities. Absolutely. And um, what so what's next? Have you got any uh, any plans for the the future for your next trip? Yeah, yeah. So vaguely have some ideas and thoughts. Um, I've got a pretty long to do list of all the adventurous things that I want to do. But that said, uh, it'll be pretty rough to take you know, Morgan, uh, our first child, through the outback on this massive, epically long expedition. And then Dylan, our second daughter, you know, just take her to the, the local theme park. But that doesn't, that doesn't quite work. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be fair. Exactly. Yeah. It's got to be fair. Yeah. It's got to be equitable. So, so I think there's going to be another big family journey. Like, I think there is. And, and we are looking at a hyper-long cycle trip. Because I feel like with two kids, that that is possible. But there, there is the family to-do list, and there's also the Justin more sort of, I suppose, pointy end of adventure to-do list that I've got. And yeah. like on the family side of things, obviously sailing, that's another thing that we, we just have to do. We'd love to, as a, as a family unit, live in a different country as well. So that's, mm-hmm. that's on the cards. But on the pointy end, you know, I've always wanted to do a massive ocean row. And, and I, I don't think I'm completely done with, with polar journeys as of yet so um there's nothing definitively i want to say this is what i'm doing next but the next journey i think will be a big family cycle trip great yeah i look forward to hearing about it yeah i think with two kids it's gonna up the up the ante a little bit yeah yeah Yeah. um great now uh, many of our our listeners are medics working uh on the front line at the moment they're practicing extreme medicine on their doorstep is there anything that you'd like to say to them I mean, the first and foremost, you've got to say thank you. You really do. I mean, thank you so much for all the hard work and sacrifice that you guys are doing uh, for us, the general hunters out there. That you know, for for half the time, you know, the general population can be pretty ungrateful at times. You know, or there's a certain demographic in society that might not be as well educated and, and doesn't quite know all the facts or or understand what's going on, and they're they're acting out of fear. They're acting out of fear of change. So please forgive them for that and I'm sorry for that. But also going back to that analogy of for the first time, humanity as a whole is on, well, in our generation's lives, we're on an expedition together. You know, we're weathering this storm and to be pretty honest about it, you guys are the ones that are the captains. You're the ones that are the the critical people. and We are just passengers below deck. So thank you so much for all the hard work and, um, yeah i mean different countries are doing some places are doing better than others but like you guys are all doing a fantastic job and 
It makes me wish I continued on with medicine, actually, to tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Josie. That, that, that's awesome. And, and how can people find you online? Oh, online, I'm fairly easy to find, although I think there's an American baseball player who's got the same name as me who pips me in some of the searches. But um, So uh, a couple of websites for you, www.justinjonesy.com. Uh, so it's J-O-N-E-S-Y. Um, there's links from that to, to the other websites like the family journey of the Joneses.com. But I'm also going to be launching another one called adventurethinking.com. Uh, and that's around um, applying an expedition and sort of adventure mindset to each, uh, to everyday lives. And it's, it's, it's the realization that I've had that I'm a different person at home to the Jonesy that's on a journey. And it's about trying to work out the triggers. And my wife was the one that pointed this out to me. I had a massive hissy fit one day about, I think I spilled a cup of coffee over some papers and I had this massive tantrum. And she was like, what's going on with you? Because like, if this happened on an expedition, you just get on with it and you just, you know, deal with the situation. And here you're having a bit of a hissy fit. And I realized that on an expedition, you have a very expansive sort of open growth mindset, whereas at home when I'm comfortable, it's very closed. And so learning the triggers to switch between between that. So there's going to be some fun stuff there and going to be talking to some interesting people on, on that. Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting project. Yeah, taking mm. that expedition mindset in, into the domestic environment. Yeah, <laughs> easier said than done. Yeah, into, yeah, domestic environment to business to personal life. You're right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's everything. But um, yeah. So and, and on all the social media things, Justin R. Yeah. Jonesy. Yeah, yeah, great. But um, hey, awesome. This has been so much, so much fun. Like, yeah, likewise. It's been it's been a real pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, um, I'll. Happy trails, everybody.